for today is Hebrews 5, 11 through chapter 6, 12. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, it's good for me to be uh, with you again. I love it when Pastor Phil asks me if I'll come and um, preach the word uh, on a Sunday morning at, at Mount Olympus. I think I've probably spoken more times in this church than any other church in the valley, probably including my own Centenary United Methodist Church at this point. So it's always a pleasure. It's always an honor. Uh, it's so nice to see many faces that I recognize. If I don't remember your name, that's me. I'm getting old, but I do remember your face. Uh, and so, may uh, God open our ears and open our eyes this morning as we delve a little bit into, um, into this passage from Hebrews, Hebrews this morning. Uh, Hebrews is a complex and a difficult book, as Pastor Phil acknowledged a few weeks ago when he launched this summer's sermon series. As part of my prep for the morning, uh, morning sermon, I got online and listened to the beginning of uh, his opening up of um, 
the book of Hebrews just, just a few weeks ago. Um, he said, and I, let me agree with him, much of the content of the book of Hebrews does not relate to our world and to our time and to our experiences. Hebrews contains many Old Testament references, and he says, and I'll, I'll trust him because I didn't count, 35 quotations from Old Testament scripture, more than any other New Testament book. So it kind of gets that dusty feel to it that we often think the Old Testament has. It's not the stuff that, uh, it's full of references to Jewish temple worship, to priesthood, uh, to animal sacrifices. It's kind of not the stuff most of us Christians today find inspiring for our daily lives or instructional about, you know, how we should think and act. One of the commentaries I read, a uh, commentary in the Interpreter's Bible, says this about Hebrews. It says Hebrews is little understood uh, today because of, quote, the closely reasoned and at times somewhat labored character of the argument and the priestly and sacrificial terminology. I would agree. After an hour uh, spent reading yesterday through Hebrews uh, in prep for the sermon, I found myself longing for the simplicity of the words of Jesus. There was once a man who had two sons. A sower went out to sow seed. The good shepherd leaves behind the 99 sheep and goes out looking for the one that is lost. What clarity, what simplicity, and how those words fall on our ears and lodge in our hearts. We don't even know for certain who wrote the book of Hebrews or when it was written and what group of people were the first to hear its message. Modern biblical scholars have drawn some conclusions, but let me say that not all agree. So let me say a couple of things. The book of Hebrews is not a letter like the other epistles in the New Testament. It reads more like a sermon. It was probably not one of the Apostle Paul's writings, though it gets ascribed to Paul. But even from the earliest days of the church, there was argument about, is this his writing? Because the themes resonate with many of Paul's themes, but the language doesn't, Scholars think it was probably written by a contemporary follower or a companion of Paul. Because it speaks about temple worship, but doesn't mention the destruction of the temple, and that happened in 70 AD by the Roman armies uh, in reaction to Jewish revolt. Because it doesn't mention that, then scholars say, well, it was probably written before the destruction of the temple. So maybe in the mid to late 60s, 64 to 68 AD. And given the overwhelming Jewish content of the scriptural quotations and the general purpose of the book, which is to strengthen faith in Christ and admonish backsliding, it was likely written to an audience of converts from Judaism who were losing their focus on Jesus and starting to fall back into Jewish theological beliefs and practices. If you've heard all of this already in the past few weeks of sermons, I apologize. 
But I want to set a context for my remarks today on those 16 verses from Hebrews that we just heard read. The general theme for this section of the book is a call to the community to move past the mere basics of Christianity and become fully mature Christians. I wondered what was that likely to mean for this congregation of first century Jewish converts? What exactly is Paul talking about? And I think I find it in this passage, uh, these lines that say, let us move beyond the elementary teaching about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of, and then there's a list of things that, that for, the, for, the, for the writer sound like the foundations of basic Christianity, um, repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, sometimes translated as baptisms in, in, some, of the, in some of the versions, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So those foundations, basic. One commentary I read um, says this. There's nothing in that list of items to which a non-Christian Jew could not subscribe. Thus, the readers or the listeners of Hebrews appear not to have moved much beyond those beliefs, repentance for sins, faith in God, um, rituals that involve water, they have not much beyond beliefs that they probably already had before they became Christians. Quite probably, this, comment, this commentary says, they were deliberately holding to a minimalist Christianity that could also pass as a form of Judaism and thereby avoid persecution. Mm. There's always a reason, isn't there? A pointed reason why people are or are not at this, in this period, in these early years, uh, first century, whether they are or, or are not visibly followers of Jesus Christ. Always reasons. And very often it's around a persecution in one, one form or another. So if the writer of Hebrews is complaining about a minimalist Christianity, what should a mature, what would a mature Christianity look like um, for these first listeners, for these first century recent converts from Judaism? What would mature Christianity look like? So elsewhere in the book, the writer makes really clear what mature Christianity should look like for these listeners. First of all, the superiority of Jesus over Moses, the great leader of the Jewish people. The superiority of Jesus over Moses. And the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus through the shedding of his blood on the cross that does away with the old rite, the old sacrificial rite. Jesus is now the eternal high priest who dwells forever in the presence of God in heaven. So there's no longer any need for an earthly high priest who once a year enters the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And, perhaps most importantly, we are kept in right relationship with God through faith, faith in Jesus, not through scrupulously obeying the laws of Moses. 
So that, that's kind of, for the first listeners, this is what the writer of Hebrews says is a mature Christianity. What about us, 21st century Christians who are not recent converts from Judaism? Any recent converts from Judaism? I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Uh, what relevance does this passage have uh, for us? What relevance does it have for us? And uh, in thinking about contemporary relevance of difficult scriptural passages, I pulled a book off my bookshelf called Reading the Bible with Heart and Mind, written by a guy called Semple Longman. Um, I, I used this book in, in, in seminary class. And he has this warning for contemporary readers. And I think it's always important for us to, to kind of to remember this. Remember, he said, that the epistles, this section of the New Testament, the letters, you may not be able to understand everything to which the letters allude. They are talking to specific people, so they're tailoring their comments to specific problems. You've probably heard this before, but it's such a good reminder. So be careful, he says, not to make absolute statements based on a letter that intends to speak to a specific situation. So, with that um, uh, caveat ringing in our ears, I, I want us to look again at this morning's scripture, the, these 14 lines uh, from the book of Hebrews, and to try to think through what a call to Christian maturity might look to us today. And to help this passage sound a bit more familiar to our modern ears, I'm going to read it from the message. This is a contemporary uh, translation of the Bible written by Eugene Peterson, who is a Presbyterian pastor and theologian. And I find very often that, that his, his translation of the Bible, the message, will give me a slightly different look or um, words that I can hear in a different way, particularly around around some of the tricky things that are often uh, found in the letters, in the epistles, these occasional things that were written to specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. So, um, so I'm going to read the same uh, text from the message. But before I do, I want to set a framework around it by pointing out that there are three sections in this passage, three different sections. The first one is a rebuke, which is followed by a warning. And finally, some words of encouragement. So, according to um, the message, the transla uh, translation of this passage, here's the rebuke. So, Eugene Peterson um, writes his translation of this section as follows. I have a lot more to say about this, but it's hard to get it across to you since you've picked up this bad habit of not listening. By this time... You are to be teachers yourselves, and yet I find you need someone to sit down with you again and go over the basics on God, starting from square one. Baby's milk, when you should have been on solid food long ago. Milk is for beginners, inexperienced in God's ways. Solid food is for the mature, who have some practice in telling right from wrong. So come on, let's leave the 
preschool finger painting exercises on Christ and get on with the grand work of art. Grow up in Christ. The basic foundational truths are in place. Turn your back on salvation by self-help. Turn in trust towards God. Baptismal instructions, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, God helping us, we'll stay true to all of that. But there's so much more. Let's get on with it. Ouch! Imagine how the first hearers or readers of Hebrews would smart under that criticism. Now comes the warning. Next passage. Once people have seen the light, gotten a taste of heaven, and been part of the work of the Holy Spirit, once they've personally experienced the sheer goodness of God's word and the powers breaking in on us, if then they turn their backs on it, washing their hands of the whole thing, well, they can't start over again as if nothing happened. That's impossible. Why? They're re-crucifying Jesus. They've repudiated him in public. Parched ground that soaks up the rain and then produces an abundance of carrots and corn for its gardener gets God well done. But if it produces weeds and thistles, it's more likely to get cussed out. Fields like that are burned, not harvested. Ouch, again. Like whoever wrote Hebrews is pulling no punches. Backsliding from Christian commitment is like crucifying Christ all over again. And whenever we hear about fields being burned, I always have hell, flame, and damnation in my mind. Finally, here's the encouragement. I'm sure that won't happen to you, friends. I have better things in mind for you, salvation things. God doesn't miss anything. He knows perfectly well all the love you've shown him by helping needy Christians and that you keep at it. And now I want each of you to extend that same intensity towards a full-bodied hope and keep, it, keep at it till the finish. Don't drag your feet. Be like those who stay the course with committed faith and then get everything that's promised to them. And now these first listeners can breathe again. In spite of the stern rebuke and the dire warning, there is hope if we stay the course as committed, mature Christians and gain the promises of God. Did that help to hear it that way? It helped me when I, when I compared, um, when I compared the, two, the two versions. Have you ever been rebuked by your pastor publicly on a Sunday morning during worship service? I have, and I've never forgotten it. I grew up Catholic in a coal mining town in the north of England, and that little town had plenty of Protestant churches and little Methodist chapels, but only one Catholic church built in 1907 to serve the many Irish Catholic families whose men work in the coal mines, the Church of St. Mary Magdalene was a 
hulking gray stone and concrete buildings full of dark corners and, and banks of prayer candles that illuminated statues of St. Patrick and St. Anthony and the Virgin Mary and the bleeding crucified figure of Jesus, blood pouring from his hands and his feet and his side and running in rivulets down his face and neck from a vicious crown of thorns. That was enough to put the fear of God into any young Catholic boy. And I was no exception. But even more to be feared was the parish priest, Father Avery, who had the honorific title of canon. He was a canon of the church. And boy, <laughs> that was appropriate. You could touch him off and he'd explode. Canon Avery was a strict, distant, always angry-looking man who wore a hearing aid and consequently spoke in a booming voice in the 1950s and 60s before the Second Vatican Council. The mass and other church services were said in Latin, a language we children had to learn in school. This further distanced the priest from us. Kind counselor and mentor, he was not. One Sunday morning, I, I couldn't have been more than nine years old, I was at Mass with my little brother, who was three years younger than me. I don't know why, I don't remember why we were in the pews on our own, but our parents were nowhere close by. My brother was even less happy to be in church that morning than I was. Pretty soon he started squirming and wriggling and making a fuss. He hit his high point right in the middle of Canon Avery's sermon, which was always delivered down to the people from a high pulpit that had a winding staircase up to it, just so you'd know who was in charge. Maybe his hearing aid had been turned down earlier. Maybe he'd just turned it up a moment before. But he stopped in mid-sentence, looked down at me from that pulpit's enormous height, pointed at me with outstretched arm and said, take the little one out now. I tell you, my cheeks burned with shame as I dragged my brother down the long center aisle of that church to the stony, disapproving stairs of all the adults in the congregation. I don't remember what happened when I got outside other than punching my little brother, which only made him howl louder. But I carried that shame for years to come. Years to come. Back then, I was definitely an immature Christian. Baby Christian. I needed milk. I didn't need to be yelled at by the priest. Um, but thanks to the grace of God, I believe I've matured in my faith. I'm no longer Catholic. I'm Methodist had a period in my life when I wasn't much of anything. But my journey of faith um, as a Christian, I, I, believe, I believe I've matured. How about you, each of you? Do you consider yourself mature in your Christian faith? 
And what might be the litmus test we could apply to measure that maturity? So I thought of three basic questions that we might ask to determine a measure of Christian maturity. And as I asked them of myself this morning, perhaps you might reflect on the answers you would give. So here goes. My first question is, why am I still a Christian at this point in my life? Why have I stuck with Christianity? I've lived in in many different countries. I've met people from all different faiths. I've read theology and philosophy. I'll be 66 this year. You know why? I was a cradle Catholic. Why am I still a Christian? As a chaplain at Primary Children's Hospital, as Kathy um, mentioned this morning, as a chaplain there, I've seen enough suffering of children to question the existence of a loving and merciful God. All I can say is this. The Christian story is the best answer I can find to human suffering. I believe in a God who so loved his son and the world that he sent him on a mission to redeem the whole world. And when the whole world turned against him and forced him to die a cruel and painful death, God, his father, looked on helplessly and could not prevent it from happening. I think of that every time I'm with a parent in the hospital who has to stand by their child's bedside and watch them die. I don't know why there is such suffering and death in the world. All I know is that we are frail human beings and this is the broken world we live in. If God took away suffering and death, then this would be heaven, and we would be angels, not human beings. The Christian story, the message in the death, suffering and death of Jesus, to me is the best answer I can find to reconciling human suffering and a loving God. So, so the first question I ask, and maybe you might ask yourself, is why are you a Christian at this point in your life? The second question I ask myself is, what does Christianity do for me? So, and my answer to that is, unlike many other religions, Christianity gives me a God who knows what it's like to be me. The story of the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming truly human as a baby born to his mother Mary, that great mystery of our faith tells me that God shares in my humanity. Jesus as fully divine and fully human means I don't worship a distant God who's light years away from understanding my human struggles and my needs and my aspirations, but one who is intimately here with me, weeping when I weep and rejoicing when I rejoice. So the second question I'll ask you to ask yourself is, what does Christianity 
do for you at this point in your life? The third and final question I thought of in framing a measure for Christian maturity and maturity in Christ is this. Wherein lies my hope? Wherein lies my hope? For me, my hope doesn't lie in following a strict set of rules and laws. My hope lies in my faith that no matter what happens, for good or for bad, God is there with me. That's the hope I try to convey to parents when their child is dying. Our faith is that we're all in God's good hands every moment of our life and forever in the life to come. So their child is and always will be safe and loved. That's where my hope lies. And so that's my final question to measure your maturity as a Christian. Wherein lies your hope? So I'll leave you this morning with this, I think, the simplest and most profound expression of Christian maturity I know. These are the words of the medieval Christian writer and mystic Julian of Norwich, who in a vision heard Jesus speak to her and say, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Amen.